I like to see everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Just start with a uh, little personal history, which many of you know. When I first went to India to find a teacher, this was almost 50 years ago, in 1967, I traveled around for quite a while going to different ashrams and um, just looking, you know, for some kind of uh, meditative guidance. But I really didn't know what I was looking for exactly. <coughs> but I ended up in Bodh Gaya, where I met my first teacher, Anagarika Munindraji. And at that time, <coughs> there were only about <coughs> six or seven Westerners in Bodh Gaya. So things have changed <coughs> quite a bit since then. And we were all meeting with Munindraji at the Burmese Vihara, this place where most of the Westerners were staying. And at my very first meeting <coughs> with him, he said something which was so down to earth and so connecting and so practical that I knew (coughs) I had really found what I was looking for. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. So that was it. There was nothing to join. There were no big rituals or ceremonies. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. How else can we understand our minds except by doing that? Of course, this very simple instruction turned out to be very far-reaching and very profound. You know, and as Manindraji would often say, <coughs> it's very simple, but not always easy. And I'm sure you can relate to that. So we can begin this exploration of our minds with one aspect of our experience that's very predominant uh, for almost all of, it, all of us, and that is by paying attention to our thoughts and the various attitudes in the mind which are conditioned by our thoughts. So the Buddha spoke to this very directly, and this is a teaching which at once seems so obvious but goes to such depths in terms of understanding the unfolding of our lives. He said, bhikkhus, whatever one frequently thinks about and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So just reflect for a moment. Now, usually we think of our thoughts as just passing through. And I think we don't necessarily pay attention to the fact that our thoughts are conditioning certain patterns in the mind. And especially repetitive thoughts become the inclination of our minds. The more often a particular thought or a particular pattern of thought arises, the more likely it is to arise again. You know, and even in my minuscule knowledge of neuroscience, but I've been told by the authorities that this is correct. You know, each of our thoughts and the repetitive nature of thoughts, it deepens or strengthens the neural pathways in the brain. You know, and it's something we can observe in our own experience. What we frequently think about ponder upon, becomes the inclination, becomes the tendency of our minds. So we can understand why the Buddha gave such importance to this in the second step of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right thought. Now given that our actions are conditioned or are preceded by our thoughts, about how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world, 
and the understanding that wholesome and unwholesome motives in the mind bring about consequences. So these thoughts are not just happening and disappearing without ripples. Every time we're lost in or identified with a thought or a thought pattern, there's a karmic charge to that. And so we can see that an essential part of our practice is first to discern the wholesome and the unwholesome patterns of thought. So we actually can see clearly and distinguish them. And we can cultivate those which lead to our happiness, to the happiness of others, and we can learn, we can practice abandoning those or letting go of those which cause suffering, either to ourselves or others. And as with so many other aspects of the Buddha's teachings, he was very specific. He didn't just say, think good thoughts, don't think bad thoughts, or cultivate the good and abandon the bad. He was very specific. He said, and what bickers is right thought? It is thoughts and resolve of renunciation, free of sensual desire, thoughts of goodwill, free of ill will, and thoughts of compassion, free of cruelty. So the question for us is, how do we actually put this into practice? You know, not only on retreat, but in our lives as well. How do we practice this step of the Noble Eightfold Path? So there's one sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya called Two Kinds of Thoughts. And in it, the Buddhist suggests a way to begin. So he said, bhikkhus, before, and just as a footnote, Bhikkhu Bodhi has explained that bhikkhus in its most general sense refers to everyone on the path. You know that in the more formal sense it refers to monks, but he said that the meaning of the word in its most general sense is everybody walking on this path of awakening. So in that sense, we are all bhikkhus. So when the Buddha says bhikkhus, he's really speaking to us as well. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me. Suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, of ill will, and of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, of goodwill, and of compassion. Then he takes the second step. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, like all of you, when a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. It leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. And this is, this is a key point here. <clears throat> when I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of others, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it. Likewise with thoughts of ill will and cruelty. So following, you know, the Bodhisattva's lead in this, we can also cultivate this discernment if we're paying attention to our thoughts and the kinds of thoughts, especially the repetitive ones, especially when thoughts have created a certain pattern in our minds. 
we can notice and we need to notice what they're rooted in. Is the thought rooted in desire? Is it rooted in ill will? Is it rooted in cruelty? Or the opposite? And then, and this is something I think we don't always do or even often do, consciously reflect, as the Bodhisattva did, the unwholesome patterns of thought, those rooted in desire or ill will or cruelty or delusion. We can reflect consciously, this leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both. And it would be interesting to see (coughs) if that short reflection actually helps us unhook from our identification, from our being lost in those kinds of thoughts. So this is a wise reflection in the service of freedom, in the service of liberation. You know, and we can notice those thoughts which are rooted in renunciation, rooted in loving kindness, rooted in compassion, and cultivate them. As we are watching our minds and really observing the patterns in our minds and become increasingly aware of these two classes or kinds of thoughts, it becomes easy to see the great seductive power, the strength of those thoughts with unwholesome roots. And we can learn, we can learn a lot just from attending to them in a careful way. You know, and it's said that <coughs> ill will and aversion are said to be more dangerous than sense desire, but easier to uproot. Where desire is less dangerous, causes less harm, but is harder to uproot. So why is this? You know, when we attend to our experience, we see that ill will or aversion, anger, is always unpleasant. You know, and the suffering involved in feeling it and acting on it uh, is reasonably obvious. But sense desires, you know, on the other hand, are usually associated with some kind of pleasure. And it's not always apparent to us (coughs) why renunciation is a good idea. And the Buddha himself acknowledged this situation. At one time, a group of lay people, like most of us, were having a discussion with Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and attendant. So I think you'll be able to relate to this, especially the lay people among us. Venerable Ananda, sir, We are householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in, delighting in, enjoying and rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, Even the hearts of the very young monks and nuns leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here on this issue of renunciation is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people. So I think there's at least some part of us which is in a similar situation. You know, as was often the case, um, these people had asked Ananda this, and Ananda said, maybe we should go ask the Buddha and get his take on it. So they went off to the Buddha, and Ananda repeated, you know, this comment. And so this is what the Buddha replied. So it is, Ananda, so it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, 
but my heart didn't leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. So even the Bodhisattva, you know, on his path to awakening, he had the same feeling about it that many of us do. Where is the peace? Where is the joy? Where is the uplift in renunciation? But the Buddha went on to say, describing that time in his life, instead of his just staying in that place of not delighting, he engaged in inquiry, why doesn't the heart leap up, take delight in renunciation? He went on to say that by reflecting on the drawbacks of sense pleasures and familiarizing himself with the rewards of renunciation, then there was the possibility of the heart leaping up, growing confident, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. So it's seeing the drawbacks, reflecting on the drawbacks of sense pleasures, you know, and familiarizing himself with the rewards of renunciation. So it took an active investigation to come to that place of beginning to understand the potential and even the delight of renunciation. It probably won't happen by itself. You know, it needs our uh, wise reflection. So tonight I'd like to reflect a bit on the drawbacks of sense pleasures and perhaps familiarize ourselves a little bit with the rewards of renunciation. I think the first problem we face is the word renunciation. Because I think for many of us, we associate that word with a repression of desires, you know, with deprivation. We hear renunciation and we think, oh, this is a state of deprivation, you know, in a rather bleak and austere lifestyle. That's very often the association we have with this word. So it's no wonder that our hearts don't leap up at it. You know, it sounds bleak. <laughs> but I found that a more accurate and liberating understanding of renunciation would be to understand it as the experience of non-addiction. Because in that term, non-addiction, already I think we can intuit that there is a greater freedom. There's greater freedom in non-addiction than in being addicted. And we all know the sufferings <coughs> involved when the mind is caught up in addictions. And it can be for so many different things. You know, we can become addicted to food, to drugs, to alcohol, to sex, or perhaps more unnoticed addictions, you know, to work, or for some people to power, to recognition, to wealth, to comfort. Very often people's lives are centered around <coughs> these very common um, forces, inclinations in the mind. But very rarely do we see it in terms of being addicted to them. We can also see addictions in terms of certain mind states. You know, we, we can become entranced by different mind states and emotions, maybe like excitement or even fear. It's, it's amazing to me that we can become addicted to fear. I've never quite understood why people like going to horror movies. You know, and the scarier the better. And it's somehow it's, it's even more enjoyable, the scarier it is. But clearly there are a lot of people who just love that emotion. We can become addicted not only to the gratification you know, of different sense desires or the addiction to different particular mind states or emotions, very often we get addicted to wanting itself. 
Now we get to that place where we find enjoyment in wanting. I mean, it's very, I just came back from a few days in New York, you know, and just walking down certain of the avenues and uh, engaging in window shopping, you know, where you know you're not going to buy anything. But, the, you know, oh, looking, oh, maybe, maybe I'll want something. And, and the wanting itself had a certain kind of enjoyment till it stopped. And then I realized it was much more peaceful without it than with it. But we get caught up. We get caught up in the perceived delight of wanting. On retreats, you know, yogis often get addicted to different meditative states. Maybe attached or addicted to rapture, you know, or to calm. It's possible even to get addicted or attached even to investigation, which is the wisdom factor of the mind. How often in our practice are we trying to hold on, hold on to or recreate some experience we've had? I've had this happen so many times in the many years of my practice. I've told many of these stories, you know, early on, you know, when I was in India and practicing with Goenkaji. The first, uh, first years I was practicing with him, I had been in India already for some time and, you know, my practice was going along and in doing that kind of sweeping method, uh, it was very powerful and the whole body opened up and it became like a body of light. And every time I sat, it was just this body of light. It was blissful and wonderful. Then I had to come back to the States to work a little bit and make some more money to go back to India. And somehow in coming back here, my body of light became a body of twisted steel. And I went back to India and the light was all gone and I was trying to do the sweeping, the body scanning, and uh, uh, you know, I was trying to force my mind to all of this. And I struggled with this for two years. It was unbelievable, it was the worst two years of my practice because I had this strong attachment to that past experience. I wanted to get it back. So it was really like dragging a corpse around. You know, that experience was gone, that had died. But the mind was so attached to the pleasure of it, to the pleasantness of it. Two years I was struggling and it took that long for me to finally realize it's not about getting anything back. It's not about wanting. The wanting itself was causing all that suffering. And so I then just relaxed into how things were. Finally, it took that long. And then things started to unfold, not in the way that it had been, but at least things started moving again, things started flowing. So please don't spend two years trying to get an experience back. That's not the path. Or, as I mentioned, we can become overly investigative. You know, where we're wanting or looking or searching for some new insight. And I had this experience in Burma, studying with, practicing with Saito Upandita. And I'd been there for some time, and again, my practice was going well, and the mind was quite concentrated, and I was just seeing you know, such details of things, and I was so excited by it, uh, seeing details of things I had never seen before. And I thought my practice was going really well. I would go in and report you know, all these subtleties of practice and experience. And all he said to me, this was one of the best interviews ever, all he said to me was, you're too attached to subtlety. You know, and it was like, <laughs> it's so cut through, you know, and he did it in his inimitable way. <laughs> it just cut through that wanting, that thinking that the path is about getting some new subtle level of experience. The path is always about letting go of craving, letting go of wanting, letting go of clinging. So it's very important that we, uh, 
that desire doesn't co-opt our practice. You know, so it's, it's worth paying attention to that. What's so beguiling about all of these various, call them addictions or you know, deep desires, patterns of clinging, is that in the moment of gratification, they are pleasant, they are agreeable. They do give us a certain kind of happiness in that moment of gratification, and that's what tricks us, that's what beguiles us. But then we grasp at them, we try to hold on to them, we try to get them back. When they change, we reach for them again, and that's what involves us in a cycle of suffering. Or we look for some other source of gratification. You know, we may give that one up, but then look, oh, maybe something else will bring that pleasure. And so we stay on the wheel of samsara until kind of we're totally immersed in the wanting mind, the grasping mind. We become firmly enmeshed in the force field you know, of desires, but often not even suspecting or realizing that we're actually entrapped. We just think we're living our lives. And that's why bringing attention to this practice of right thought is so essential. We really need to wake up to the kinds of thoughts, to the patterns of thoughts that we're having. So just as a little experiment you might make, just look at some of the habitual actions you do during the day. And you probably don't even think of them as addictions. Just look at what are your habits? Your habits of when you have a cup of tea, or your habits of when you go to sleep, or your habits of how long you walk. Just take a look at what your habits are, and then see what it would take to change that habit. It might be earth-shattering to have tea at 11 instead of 9.30, you know, whatever. It's amazing, the power of habit is so strong. It's always, it brings us right up against it if we say, okay, I'm gonna look at this and let go of doing it this way. Even about some small things, it begins to loosen, you know, that power of desire, of wanting. It creates a little more space in the mind. It is possible to relate to desires, and this of course is our practice, in an entirely different way. Instead of being propelled by them into action, whether it's about big things in our lives or small desires that we're acting on you know, throughout the day, instead of being carried along by the power of our habits or the power of the desire, the wanting, what we can do and what we need to practice, and it's sometimes a challenging practice, is to develop a wise restraint, a settling back and seeing the desire, so it's not repressing them, and it's not avoiding them, it's actually seeing when they're arising in the mind, and being mindful enough so that we can see the desire arise and be there and pass away all by itself. We don't have to struggle with it, we don't have to force it, force anything, but can we not act on it? Can we be mindful enough to see it and see its impermanent nature? And what we learn, and this is something that we can learn on retreat and you know, hopefully to some extent, bring it back into our lives in the world, 
but it becomes very clear on retreat. This, this is a great laboratory for understanding the mind and how it's working. We begin to see that there is much greater peace and much greater ease in not wanting than in wanting. Now, even though conventionally we associate kind of that wanting desire in mind with a certain kind of pleasure, when we're paying attention to our minds, and I suggest you know you do this in a very specific way. The next time you become aware of a desire in the mind, wanting in the mind, you can become mindful of it. Really watch for that place of transition. You know, wanting, wanting, and we're caught up in it, and then maybe we're mindful of it, and then at a certain point it goes away. Really pay attention to that moment, to that transition. For me, it has always felt like a relief. It feels like it's being let out of the grip of something. Even if I felt some kind of pleasure in the wanting, it always feels more easeful when the mind is free of wanting. But this is not something to believe. This is something you know, that each one of us has to see over and over again. We really need to taste this for ourselves. You know, and here we're really getting glimpses of the third noble truth. The mind free of craving, even if it's just for a few moments at a time. There's one verse in the Dhammapada uh, that expresses this very clearly. It says, if by giving up a lesser happiness, a greater happiness could be found, a wise person will renounce the lesser for the sake of the greater. But in order to really uh, implement that understanding, we have to see for ourselves that the mind free of desire is a greater pleasure. It's not enough to know it intellectually, we have to actually experience that. And we can if we're watching our minds. We're watching it when it's caught up in wanting, and then we're watching it and feeling it when the wanting goes away. In those moments, in that moment of the mind being free of desire, free of wanting, we might begin to understand the possibility of our hearts leaping up at renunciation, of growing confidence, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. Because we've had a glimpse, we've had a taste, oh yes, this actually is more peaceful. This is a happier state. But even when we've had this experience, you know, in our practice and in our lives, still the developing of the parami of renunciation, it's a gradual process. Because as we've mentioned, there's often an initial fear or anxiety of giving up something that more familiarly brings us a certain kind of happiness. It may be a lesser one, but at least we're familiar with it. So the thought of renouncing it, at first, you know, it might trigger this little bit of anxiety or fear. I had this, I mean, we've all had so many experiences of this. When I first went to Bodh Gaya in India, this you know, all those years ago, at some point, uh, it was the first time I decided to shave my head. And at that time I still had hair, so it was a bigger deal. (laughs) And I just remember so clearly, it just felt like this huge thing. You know, what's it gonna be like? And I'm gonna just be giving up my hair. And it was so amazing. I mean, it, it, it grew to be such a big thing in my mind. And about 
30 seconds after my head was shaved, I really, it was nothing. It absolutely was nothing. And I think this happens so many different times. You know, we build up something in our minds as being so important to us. And the giving it up turns out to be not a problem at all. But it's that first initial, you know, anxiety about it. First time I went to Burma, you know, so in my mind I had also built up, you know, all this uh, renunciation nightmares, you know, of what it was going to be like. Uh, and the night before I left, I had this dream that I landed in Burma and uh, you know, the powers that be took away my zafu. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't have a zafu. Yeah, and I was so upset. <laughs> So it was just a bit of a renunciation anxiety dream. <laughs> oh, another time uh, I'd been in India, again, more early on in my practice. Uh, but it was pretty, there weren't many people there practicing at that time. And I remember going through periods of, I don't know, just what I would call cosmic loneliness. You know, just feeling so alone, you know, just far away from friends and family and everything familiar and kind of my heart and my mind just, you know, had, had uh, kind of was the anguish of that feeling. But it's so interesting how over time and practice and experience, the attitudes in the mind about all these kinds of renunciation totally change. And I'm sure, you know, all of you have a fair amount of practice experience now. Uh, these days, the thought of coming on retreat, is, it's the happiest thought possible. And I had a striking experience of the change in attitude a few years ago. I was teaching in Italy, and it was a rented, we rented uh, space in an old Catholic monastery up in the mountains uh, of Tuscany. And the monastery had a hermitage a few miles further up the mountain. And um, I was teaching with Kamala masters and uh, one day we just went up to visit the hermitage. And at this hermitage, they had built cells where the monks, individual cells, each with a little, little private garden, you know, very small, just, you know, for walking back and forth in. And, and the monks would enter these cells for life. You know, that, that, was, that was their commitment. And they had one outside kind of the walls where, you know, kind of a, a sample cell where you could just go in and see what it was like. Uh, so I went in. And so I went in, and then I went into the little garden, and I was so surprised by the feeling I had, because instead of feeling imprisoned, you know, I, was, I thought I might, oh, you know, imagining going into that for life, quite spontaneously, uh, actually, my heart in, in a modest way, did leap up with joy. It was, and it was very unexpected, you know, but somehow I tuned in to the potential power and, and beauty and uplift of it. I, I had the thought, oh, what, I mean, this an amazing life it would be where one's only companion is awareness. You know, and that's how one spends one's life. Now, I'm not, I don't think I'm quite ready to sign up for it. <laughs> but I was surprised at that, you know, spontaneous intuitive response. And it just showed a whole shift, you know, of understanding and, you know, the appreciation of the delight, the potential delight and joy of renunciation. I'm sure many of you have that same kind of feeling just coming here on retreat, you know, and entering into silence. Uh, when I, 
when I start a retreat and just enter the silence, it is such a happy moment. You know, for this period of time, you know, we don't have to present ourselves to anyone. We don't have to assume any role. We can just abide in the peace of the moment, in the peace of awareness. You know, so I think we all have, you know, tasted, you know, the potential of this renunciation. So a retreat environment really provides an opportunity <coughs> kind of to explore the edges, kind of push the boundaries a bit of this <coughs> quality of renunciation, of non-addiction, of letting go. <coughs> now, what would it be like, for example, for some time, for those of you who haven't done it, to um, explore, experience the Eight Precepts? You know, we have strong desires around food. This is kind of built in to our system. So what would it be like just to experiment? Okay, for a certain period of time, <clears throat> you know, I won't take food after the noon meal. And just to see, does it create more lightness, you know, or ease, or not? It's not to believe anything, it's really to take it on as an investigation. What would it be like to walk or sit 15 or 30 minutes longer than you might usually do. You know, just to see. Or as I mentioned, just to kind of look at what our daily habits are and to practice renouncing one or two of them. One very important arena in this regard is, in terms of breaking habits, is to see and to investigate the habitual um, quality of our attention. Now, because we've all developed meditative habits, and you've all been practicing for quite a while, and it's very easy just to get into the groove of how we practice. You know, we've all established different habits of how we pay attention. So there's one distinction I'd like to emphasize in terms of looking at the quality of our attention, and that is understanding the difference between being relaxed in the practice and being casual. You know, because relaxation is really important. Relaxation is an important component of concentration. And so we want to practice in a relaxed, the mind relaxed, the body relaxed. But very often, if we're not attentive, relaxation can become a casual way of practice. And I call this I call this the state of more or less mindful. You know, we're kind of there, but we're not really there. We're not fully there. We're not really connected in a precise way. So we want to look at the quality of our attention, the habit of the quality of our attention. You know, and really see, you know, am I going along more or less paying attention? Or is the attention really uh, impeccable? This has a very powerful effect on the practice. One time I was, I was practicing in Nepal with Sayadaw Pandita and the conditions were terrible. Just, we were about four or five of us in one room on a cement floor next to the latrine. <laughs> it was really bad. And my mind was really grumpy. And so I go in and I report to Sayadaw, you know, say, my mind's really complaining. And all he said to me was, be more mindful. 
And I thought, thanks a lot. (laughs) It didn't seem like such a helpful interview. But he's this great teacher, and so I went outside and, well, I'll try it. And I started to, to do the walking meditation more mindfully. I really started feeling the movement very closely, really closely. And it was amazing, just in the very moment of going from that more or less mindful with the whole grumpy background in the mind to really carefully feeling what was happening, all of that kind of grumpiness and dissatisfaction disappeared. I just saw how easy it is to slide along in this kind of mindfulness state and be missing the power of what can happen when we're really being mindful. And it can be done in a very relaxed way. It's not forcing at all. It's not struggling. It's just feeling things carefully. So one little mantra that you might use, I found helpful on retreat, is... Each step, that's the mantra, each step. So what that means is, am I feeling each step carefully? You know, and this is particularly as we're moving about, you know, because we might be doing that in the walking, formal walking meditation, but as you're leaving the hall or going, you know, to lunch or going from one place to another, Are we bringing that level of care? Okay, each step. And it doesn't have to do with speed. It has to do with the quality of our attention, the care with which we're taking it at any speed. You know, we can also practice renouncing complexity So often we get lost in the papancha of our mind, just the proliferating thoughts about our lives. And so often we just are so caught up making our lives so complex. And yet when we investigate what's happening at any moment, it's only one of six things that's ever arising. It's sights, or sounds, or smells, or tastes, or touch sensations, touch sensations, or mind objects. That's all that's ever happening. (laughs) But we can get lost in the in the melodrama of our minds, you know, the stories of our lives. and it takes a certain renunciation because it's very seductive. You know, these, these stories of our lives pull us into them again and again and again. So really what's happening, you might think of it, and maybe this image might be of help to you. Uh, if you think of your experience as a six-piece chamber orchestra, and we're just listening to the music, that's all, and the instruments, you know, and the sounds, the, the music, is just one of these six things happening. So it's a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a sensation or a thought. And this is the unfolding of our lives, actually. So whenever we get caught up in some complexity that's causing you know, some tension or struggle in us, it's helpful to see that, to be able to renounce our attachment to that, and just drop back into the simplicity of the moment. And in that regard, what I was talking about this morning might be of some help. You know, whenever you feel caught up, or struggling, or, oh, there's a body. It's so simple, there's a body, and we're just feeling it, and we're standing, and we're sitting. We're just feeling that, and within that frame, we become aware of one of those six objects. One of Munindraji's uh, favorite lines, he must have, I must have heard it, I don't know, thousands and thousands of times. He, he would say over and over again, be simple and easy about things. Be simple and easy. Be simple and easy. 
when when we are simple and easy about things, our life becomes simple and easy. And so it's just to remember that that's always a possibility. So there's a there's a little prose poem by the poet and translator Stephen Mitchell, which reminds us of this possibility, both of how often we're attached to our complexity and to our struggles and to our suffering and the possibility for freedom that's there. So he called this the myth of Sisyphus. You know, and if you remember, this is a Greek myth. Sisyphus has to eternally push this big boulder up a mountain. And just as it gets to the top, it falls to the bottom and he has to start pushing it up again. So this is what he wrote. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. We actually can let go of our suffering. You know, but it's very instructive to see the ways that we're attached to it, you know, and we cling to it. There's also another practice of renunciation which I found very helpful. And I call it the wisdom of no. Now, so often in spiritual practice, we emphasize the yes of things, the yes of acceptance, the yes of openness, the yes of the richness and fullness of experience. And this yes is the antidote to a lot of self-judgment and limitation. So the yes is good. There's also a wisdom of no, recognizing that some things, some thoughts, some patterns, some actions are not skillful, not helpful, not leading to happiness. And we can practice saying, no thanks, I'll pass on this. So it's important to understand what this restraint means, because it's really at the heart of our practice. Practicing the wisdom of no, uh, it really is an art. You know, we, lean, we need to learn how to use it in a very loving and kind way. Because restraint is not repression, it's not avoidance. It doesn't mean pushing things away or denying their presence. It doesn't mean being judgmental or having aversion to what's arising. With wise restraint, we can open to everything that appears in our experience. And we see what thoughts, what mind states, what actions, we see which ones are skillful, which are unskillful. We see which are conducive to peace and happiness and which just bring about suffering. You know, it's like a parent saying no to a child that's about to do something harmful. It's really a no of care. It's a no of love. It's a no of concern. So you've probably noticed by now, given how much practice you've all done, that most of us have an inner two-year-old who's always pushing the edges and wants to do all kinds of things, some of which are really not very good. So we need to be the wise and loving parent to ourselves. You know, when we see that two-year-old in the mind, no, that's not a good idea. And so as we 
you know, watch our minds through the day, we can practice this wisdom of no, even on small things. Saito Utejaniya, he, he has a very good suggestion with regard to this. You know, in terms of asking a couple of questions regarding proliferating or repetitive thoughts and desires and actions. You know, and we see the same patterns coming again and again. He suggested asking the questions, is this necessary? Is this helpful? Just two simple questions. You know, so we have a certain pattern of desire in the mind. Or just a proliferation of thought. Is this necessary? Is this helpful? And very often we'll see that it's not. So there's a wonderful poem by the poet Naomi Shihab Nye, which beautifully expresses the wisdom of no. She calls it the art of disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem or greasy sausage balls on a paper plate, then reply. If they say we should get together, say why. It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. (laughs) When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. I love that. It's just, we don't have to respond to every invitation, even internal invitation. Can we be like a leaf remembering that we could tumble at any time? Then decide what's important. Then decide where to put our energy. Here the power of no really becomes the expression of a free mind. So I just want to end with one little story. Um, because it's, it's really inspiring to me. Um, Joseph Campbell, you know, is the writer of, great writer of myths, world myths. He wrote a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, and it's uh, in, in this book, he chronicles the life of the Buddha, you know, the Bodhisattva becoming fully enlightened. Really, he tells it as the uh, archetypal journey of an enlightened being. And there's one scene where he's describing the Bodhisattva under the Bodhi tree when he's being attacked by all the forces of Mara, you know, attacked by the tendencies of desire and aversion and fear. And, and it's very, it's, Campbell describes it, you know, in very mythopoetic language. But in the face of all these forces, which we experience in our own minds, it's the same, same forces, you know, of wanting and desire and lust and anger and fear. So Campbell then describes in one line the incredible, unshakable steadfastness of the Bodhisattva. And this one line is just so inspiring to me. So in the face of all you know, this attack of Mara, which is really an internal attack, he says, and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, and just the beauty and the power of that. You know, just think of a being in the face of whatever arises, whatever comes, whether enticingly pleasant or horrifyingly unpleasant, and the mind of the great being was not moved. 
And so as we sit and practice, even in small moments, short moments, through the power of renunciation, of wise restraint, we can also practice, we can get a taste you know, of the freedom of that mind. The mind of the great being was not moved. So let's just sit for a couple of moments. and chant the reflections on the sharing of blessings. <clears throat> 